You may have heard the term um, social media influencer. That's a role that has become huge over the last few years as social media has taken our world by storm. And uh, marketing companies all over the world um, have social media influencers. There are influencers in the world of politics, the world of sport and fashion, even in the life of the church, would you believe? And you can't really say that you have um, a stake in the marketplace of ideas without some kind of social media influencer. I looked up the definition of a social media influencer on Google this week and it said, it's someone who has the power to affect the decisions and the feelings of others because of his or her authority, knowledge, or relationship with his or her audience. Now, we're probably all aware of social media influencers, but we don't always recognize the power of our own influence. You are an influencer today, whether you realize it or not. And certainly when you get involved in a church, you become influential. The question this morning is not, am I influential? But how do I use the influence I have in the church, or in the classroom, or in the ward, or in my home, or on my street? Our passage this morning from 1 Samuel 14, it's a very, very long passage. We just read half of it today. But it's all about the influence that King Saul and his son Jonathan had on the whole nation of Israel. They both had huge influence. But how did they use their influence? Did they use it for the blessing or for the cursing of Israel? And in this chapter, we see very clearly Jonathan's faith in God inspires Israel, and Saul's self-interest deflates Israel. And throughout this passage, we are being asked the question, how do we use our influence in the church that Jesus died to create. And so we start with Jonathan, that's verses 1 to 23 of the passage. Thank you very much, Andrew, for reading all those difficult Old Testament words. But the character of Jonathan here shows us that active faith inspires God's people. Active faith inspires God's people. Verse 1 says, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, this is an intriguing start to the chapter. Jonathan was wanting to take on the might of the Philistine garrison with just his armor bearer in tow. That seems a really courageous move to make, but why didn't he want to tell his father? Well, perhaps because Saul still has the inertia that marked the last chapter. While Jonathan was on the move, taking on the enemy, Saul was staying put. Verse 2 says, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. So Saul has all the army with him, but they are hiding in a cave. While Jonathan is taking on the Philistines single-handedly, he is putting his faith into action. 
And as he does that, of course, Jonathan faces significant obstacles. Verse 4 says, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, which means slippy. The name of the other was Senech, which means thorny. These are obviously well-known obstacles. That's why they had a name. But Jonathan was willing to take on huge obstacles so that he could fight against the Philistines. And look at the quality of his faith in God. Verse 6, it says, Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or even by few. Now, that is extraordinary faith, putting your life on the line like this. Jonathan was fully convinced of God's power, and he put that faith into action. But notice also, he was not presumptuous. He says, it may be that God will help us. His faith was mature enough to realize that God is sovereign, and He will do whatever will bring him glory. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, Jonathan trusts in the power of God while retaining the freedom of God. And we need to keep those two things in balance in our faith. Jonathan's faith was not reckless. In fact, he looked here for a sign that God was wanting him to attack the Philistines. Verse 10 says, if they say, if the Philistine soldiers say, come up to us, then that'll be a sign. We will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands. And look at the results of Jonathan's faith in action. In verse 14, we're told, he takes 20 Philistine soldiers by surprise. He kills them all. And then on the back of Jonathan's courageous faith, God goes to work because he's thrilled with Jonathan's faith. Verse 15, there was a panic in the whole camp of the Philistines among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic, all because of this one act of faith. God was so thrilled with Jonathan's faith, he made the earth shake, and he set panic in among all the Philistines, and we're told in verse 16, the Philistines started to turn on each other. Not only so, but the panic in the camp then encouraged Saul and his men to finally come out from their cave. Verse 20 says, Saul and all the people with him rallied and went into battle. And those joining the battle included Israelites who had previously defected to the Philistines. Verse 21 says, Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, even they also turned back to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So this one act of courageous faith from Jonathan was used by God to spread panic among all the Philistine enemy, to unite all the Israelites to join the battle, and even to make some Israelites return who had gone over to the opposition. That is what active faith in God's power can do in a church. What a challenge this is for you and me this morning. Are we ready to step out boldly in faith for God this year because we are so confident in His power and we are so zealous for His glory? 
There is no point telling God that we trust Him only in our devotional times if that doesn't lead to action. Like starting a Christian group in your workplace or going into your local school to question the sex education that they are espousing. You may feel as lonely as Jonathan going to do that, but is God asking you to do that? Or talking to that friend in the office or neighbor on the street about Jesus and inviting them to the life course. We've had a great example of that this morning already. There are a whole number of ways that we can show this kind of active faith, and our active faith then inspires God's people. It encourages other believers who are fearful to join the battle. Our faith can make those who have gone away from the Lord, the prodigals who have defected to the enemy, come back again. It is amazing what can happen in a whole church where there is this kind of active faith in God. The bold faith of one man in this passage aroused a whole nation, brought back defectors, and sent the enemy into confusion. I read a funny story this week from the life of Napoleon, the great French military general. He was commanding his troops in a certain battle, and at one point, the Prussian enemy forces were advancing, and and Napoleon told his trumpeter to sound the retreat because his men were so clearly outnumbered. But his trumpeter was young and inexperienced, and he didn't actually know the bugle call for retreat. The only call he knew was the call to charge. So that is what he played. And all the men who heard the charge from the bugle, thinking that reinforcements were on their way, they moved forward with new spirit, and they won the battle against all the odds, galvanized by the call to charge rather than retreat. And wouldn't it be wonderful if God raised up men and women in Deeside this year who called the charge, because that's the only call they know who showed such bold faith that it galvanized the whole church and made demons tremble. Could you imagine this morning an emergency meeting among the demons who are appointed to the North Side Corridor? I guarantee you there are demons appointed to the North Side Corridor. They'll be saying, look at those Christians at Side. They're starting to pray like they really mean it. They're starting to witness with courage and conviction like we haven't seen for a long time. They are living and acting with complete confidence in the power of God. Look at them. They're terrifying. What are we going to do? Sends a panic among the enemy. Brothers and sisters, are we ready to show that kind of faith in action that will send the enemy into confusion or... Are we happy to sit back in our caves, fearful and craving security with everybody else, while Satan attacks our families and our church and our city? Will we move out in faith this new year and say, perhaps, just perhaps, the Lord will be with us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few? Act of faith from even one person inspires God's people.
And Jonathan blazes a trail for us to follow here. But sadly, the same can't be said for Saul. If active faith inspires God's people, then we learn from Saul that self-interest deflates God's people. Self-interest deflates God's people. That's verses 24 to 46. I deliberately didn't have that read out because it's so deflating. The whole tone of the passage changes in verse 24 when the camera moves from Jonathan to Saul. We're told there, having thought that the battle was finished and victory was won in verse 23, verse 24 says, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So in this day of hard-fought war, Saul gave this foolish command that none of his men should eat until the Philistines were thoroughly defeated. Now, why did he give that command? Well, Saul betrays his own motives. He says, verse 24, until I am avenged of my enemies. His speech is so different to Jonathan's. Saul was incredibly self-centered while his men were at war. He was not jealous for God's glory like Jonathan, but for his own glory. I want to be avenged of my enemies. And he was prepared to use and abuse his army to get his vengeance. And Saul's self-interest brings discord in the rest of this chapter to the same troops who had been so inspired by Jonathan. If active faith inspires God's people, we also need to realize that self-interest deflates them. And you'll notice here that Saul's oath, you're not to eat anything until they're all dead, that oath led to disastrous consequences. Verse 27, we're told, Jonathan had not heard his father's charge the people with the oath. So as he was going to battle, he, he put out the tip of his spear and dipped it in honeycomb. Wouldn't it be nice to find honeycomb on the road? And that livened him up, gave him energy. But then Jonathan was told that Saul had forbidden any eating. And Jonathan says, verse 29, the plan is full of the Spirit, full of the Lord. Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. Jonathan recognized the self-interest in his own father. And that is probably the reason why he hadn't told Saul earlier about going to attack the Philistines. Saul would hold me back. Saul's self-obsession meant that he was out of step with God entirely. And actually, we find during this passage that Saul has no real interest in hearing from God at all. Later on in verse 36, when Saul was wanting to attack the Philistines again, he had to be told by a priest to ask God first. Like somebody tell you, oh, Jeremy, make sure you pray this morning. Oh, pray. Oh, 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 oh right. Saul wasn't interested in asking for God's help. And when Saul did inquire of the Lord, Lord, will you give me victory here? Verse 37, we're told God did not answer him that day. How very telling. Saul was not interested in speaking to God. So God was not interested in speaking to Saul. And Saul then ends up blaming the soldiers for his own shortcomings. This is almost a psychological exercise in where self-interest takes you. Starts blaming everybody else, blames the soldiers. 
he tells the soldiers that God was silent because they broke the oath not to eat. And then Saul foolishly says, whichever of you I find who has eaten, they shall surely die. Verse 39, he says, for as the Lord lives, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So Saul's self-interest was making him more and more dangerous within the camp of Israel. And eventually, of course, we know it's going to happen. Jonathan admits to eating the honey. And Saul swears that Jonathan, his own son, should die. And his behavior was getting so ridiculous that he lost all his moral authority in front of his troops and his own men need to intervene. Verse 45, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. And the same army that was inspired and unified by Jonathan's active faith in God was now confused and deflated by Saul's self-interest. So what does all of this mean for you and I today? Well, you can see clearly, can't you, the impact that we can have on other people all around us, even in a whole church, when we act out of self-interest. It's easy to come to church out of self-interest. I'll be happy so long as they play the hymns that I like. So long as I get the preacher that I like. I'll come to church so long as church makes no demands on me or calls me to sacrificial service. And we do the same things with home groups and prayer meetings. If this group doesn't suit me, I will either become very critical within the group or I'll just bail out. Our attitudes can do far, far more damage to the church than we realize. This isn't a cinema where we come every Sunday to be entertained. Church is a blood-bought people called to serve each other in the name of Jesus who served us by laying down His life for us. Service and sacrifice and putting the needs of others above our own are what makes church church. What makes church strong and united? Self-interest deflates a whole church. Do you realize that you and I have the power to either inspire this church or deflate this church? And we're doing this all the time. We are not neutral spectators who come and sit on a seat to take in a worship service. We think we are, but we're not. The church is a body where we belong to each other. Jesus made it that way. So how we respond, the attitudes that we bring every week, affect others all around us, for good or for ill. The words we say to each other, they can either build up or they can pull down. And actually, whether our words build up or pull down depends on whether we are in this for the glory of God at the end of the day. Or for self-interest, I've got to ask myself that question. The stark difference between Jonathan and Saul in this chapter and the hugely different impact they had on thousands of God's people boiled down to this. Jonathan was in it for God's glory. 
Saul was in it for his own. And the same is true for you and me. Active faith in God's power, genuine zeal for His glory will inspire this church. Self-interest will deflate this church like a pin going into a balloon. So which way are you and I going to choose to go? It's interesting that this long chapter ends with an overall assessment of Saul's reign as king. I've been wrestling all week. Why does this end part of this chapter finish like this? It doesn't seem to fit. It really does fit. Verses 47 to 52. It's an assessment of Saul as king. And this is a reminder to us that our lives are being assessed all the time as well. Whether you and I live by faith in Christ and trust in God's power and for God's glory, or whether we live out of self-interest, really matters because God is ultimately assessing our lives. And the fascinating thing here is the assessment of Saul, King Saul, is actually surprising because it's so positive. It's a really positive assessment. Verse 47 says, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. What a great king! And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now that is a hugely positive assessment of Saul's reign. He routed his enemies on all sides. But that assessment seems very strange. It seems to jar. Given that we have just had two whole chapters showing Saul's disobedience, and of course telling us in chapter 13 that God rejected Saul as king. So why this assessment? What's going on here? Well, it seems that verses 47 to 52 are the assessment of Saul's kingship from a human angle. We have this in kings all the time, different kings. This is what they did. This is how they reigned, and so on. Human assessment. Saul was a successful king in worldly terms. But the world's assessment of our lives is not what matters. What matters is how God assesses us. Whatever success that Saul enjoyed in human terms, he was rejected by God. That's the only thing that matters. And one day you and I are going to be judged by God. The Bible is very clear about that. We will stand before God to give an account of how we've lived our lives. And on that final day, it really will not matter whether people around us think we have lived well, whether we have a good reputation or a bad one with other people around us, whether the tribute at our funeral says we were much loved or respected or achieved great success or otherwise, none of that will matter a single jot. The only thing that will matter is God's assessment. You could be considered the most successful person in the North Deeside Corridor, and many people have spent their lives trying to gain that accolade. And it won't mean squat. God wants to know, have you lived by faith? Have you trusted in Jesus, God's Son, for salvation? That is the most basic question of all. That's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell the most basic question. 
And then have we put that faith in Christ into action? Have we played it safe and hidden away as Christians in our caves? Or have we put God's power to the test because we were so confident in who He is? Living boldly, witnessing courageously, spurring on the saints all around us. The Apostle Paul said, I think it was to the Colossians, he says, we make it our goal to please Him. That would be a great thing to have as a sticker on your heart every day. I make it my goal from the moment I wake up to please Him. Capital H. That's what will count on the last judgment. That's the only thing that will count on the last judgment. We spend so much time worrying about what others think of us. But God's assessment determines our eternal destiny. That's why the truly wise live for an audience of one. Let's stop living for ourselves, for earthly plaudits. Let's start living an active life of faith for God's glory alone, spurring on the church of Jesus Christ as we go. Only one life. Twill soon be past, don't we know it? Only what's done for Jesus will last. Amen. Let's take a moment of quiet and think through the challenge of today, and I'll pray, and we will sing. Father, I pray that you will move us just a few inches this morning from the self-interest column into the act of faith column. For in truth, Father, we're probably all somewhere in between. Father, forgive the elements, the major elements of self-interest in my own life. I pray, Lord, that you will increase my zeal for your glory, that you will turn my faith into bold action so that this church might be inspired and blessed and moved forward. And I pray for each of us, for we are a body joined together by precious blood. May each of us really assess our hearts before your Spirit. Lord, what's in the self-interest column and what's in the act of faith column? Lord, increase our desire for your glory. Increase our confidence so that like Jonathan, we can say the Lord saves, whether by many or by few. And help us to step out in active faith this week, whatever that means, in our street, in our family home, in our local school, workplace, wherever, Father. Help us to step forward in bold faith, because thank you that that thrills you. And just as you led a quake in the whole Philistine camp in the heart of enemy territory because of one man's faith, Father, you can do the same today. May we pray in a way that shakes the foundations of hell. May we witness in a way that grabs a hold of people who are heading to utter darkness and bring them into the joy of the kingdom of light.
Give us this kind of act of faith, we pray. Forgive us where we're lacking and help us ultimately to be in this more and more, increasingly so, for the glory of God. To you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.